we all look forward to Christmas. And of course, everybody likes to be able to start a new year, to begin fresh with, with ideas and, and focus on things that we need to accomplish in the coming year. I think we all have uh, family traditions in which uh, we like to participate, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think it is a good idea to be able to embrace a family tradition and to be able to do the things and to uh, think about over the years how we've done that and kind of commemorate some uh, that have gone before us in that family tradition. But I don't think we can allow ourselves to get caught in a rut doing the same things over and over again simply because that is what has always been done. The problem with some traditions is they keep us from being exactly what we ought to be. Some traditions keep us from growing. They keep us from maturing into the people that we need to be. Now, a tradition can keep one from being what God needs him to be. In describing his life as a Jew, Paul said this. He said that he profited in the Jews' religion above many uh, my equals in my own nation being exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my Father, Galatians 1.14. And of course, we understand what those traditions did for Paul. They kept him from being what he needed to be when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. They prevented him from obeying the gospel when he had heard the gospel for the first times, and we know he heard it at least when Stephen preached it, and he probably heard it many times before because he was a stout defender of the Jewish religion, that defunct religion that no longer held any place in God's laws. And of course, uh, we look at the idea of traditions. They're not all bad because he told those in Thessalonica, he said, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So, are traditions good or bad? That's a question. I think the answer is yes. They can be good or they can be bad, right? Depending on the tradition. I want us to consider for a few moments this evening how to avoid the bad and to embrace the good. The title of the sermon this evening is There is Nothing Wrong with Tradition Unless... Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I want us to notice the first two verses. I want us to have the the concept of the whole chapter in our mind as we look at this, but we'll begin with uh, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that uh, what is uh, good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want us to consider again the essence of the whole chapter. How do we need to make changes to the traditions in our lives? The ones that we need to abandon. And we may not even consider some of those things, but sometimes things happen and we get into a habit of doing certain things and they kind of turn into a tradition. Some people kind of get into the tradition of... uh, Their attendance in worship is not exactly what it ought to be. We get into the tradition or the habit of not studying the Bible exactly as much as we ought to. We we kind of have the habit sometimes or get into the tradition of not searching it out for ourselves, instead listening to what the preacher has to say or 
or what an elder has to say or just someone we have respect for. And that's a good thing to have those people in our lives, but they're just people. And sometimes they make mistakes. God wants us to consider the traditions in our lives or the habits in our lives. And we want to be able to look at that and make the changes necessary because if tomorrow comes, don't we always want tomorrow to be better than today? We want ourselves to be better tomorrow than we are today if tomorrow comes. And of course, one way to do that is we need to expect great things from ourselves. From ourselves and from those around us. God has asked us to understand yesterday, to understand today, so we can be better tomorrow. But if we're going to be better tomorrow than we were yesterday, it has to begin in a lot of ways with anticipation of the future. We need to think about that because that's what we're aiming for, right? We're aiming on making the future better. And as we anticipate tomorrow, the first thing about anticipating tomorrow is to have dedication today. We have to be dedicated to God today. Paul began this section, wherein our passage is, by begging the reader. That's what the word beseech means. Uh, In essence, he said this, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know, Paul wasn't making a commandment. He had the authority to command, I'm telling you to present yourselves in a certain way. But he was, he was reaching out to their reason. He wanted them to reason through this. He wanted to place himself in a position where they could come to that understanding on their own. Isn't that the best way we learn? Someone can tell us and tell us and tell us, but until we come to that proper understanding through our effort, we can't ever grasp it like we ought to grasp it. it. I think as we study the Bible, we learn very quickly that God doesn't owe us anything. God does not owe us salvation. That's why Paul said that is your reasonable service. Well, what's reasonable about our service God. Well, He offers us salvation when He didn't have to. We're not deserving of salvation. So our reasonable service is to behave toward God in a certain way because of His dedication to to us, right? So therefore, we ought to have dedication today for God as we look forward to the future. Paul reminded the reader, Romans 5, 8, He said, but God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did Christ die for a bunch of good folks? Well, they might have been decent people, a lot of them in their everyday lives, but they were sinners. And Romans 6.23, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death, so God didn't have to offer that life, so it's our reasonable service to... Uh, behave in a certain way. And when we look at the new creature born through baptism for the remission of sins, Romans 6, 3, and 4, we understand that that individual's life begins with dedication today, right? We obey the gospel, today we begin with dedication. And that happens every morning, right? We ought to wake up every morning and say, today I am dedicated 
to do the things God wants me to do. Sometimes we mess up, but that's what our mindset needs to be. So as we anticipate tomorrow to please God, to make sure we're not following bad habits or bad traditions, we have to anticipate and have dedication. But we also have to have separation. And we read that in the in the passage before us. I think our dedication to God is intimately connected to our separation. How can we be dedicated to God if we're not separate from the world? And I'm not talking about not having relationships with people who are not Christians, but I'm talking about, and what Paul's talking about, is living like people in the world who are not Christians. Can we be dedicated when we're living like the world? No, we're dedicated to the world. We're dedicated to sin. We can't uh, uh, have our lives walking in the steps of sin and at the same time walking in the steps of God. It just cannot work that way. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same space. And so we need to keep in mind that if a person who fails as a Christian, he failed in dedication. That's what happens. He failed in dedication because he failed in separation as he wanted to anticipate the future in pleasing God. Uh, If we're going to have a better tomorrow... Doesn't it stand to reason that there are some things we might need to change today? If we can make tomorrow better, that means there's something needs to be changed today. We failed in some sense, or we didn't do enough of what we should have done. And I don't mean that we're living in sin. What I'm talking about is we could do a little better than what we have done, right? Depending on what area of life we're talking about. And we all have those areas where we can do better. But it does stand to reason. And when it comes to anticipating the eternal tomorrow, because that's what we're looking forward to, the eternal tomorrow, we better change the things in our lives that that are preventing us from gaining that goal. If we're separated from the world, and we're dedicated to God in the way that we ought to be dedicated to Him, that will allow us to be exactly what Peter talked about. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're able to do that. We'll be able to do that. Peter described the separated when he made this statement. Notice what he said in 1 Peter 2.9 He said, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. To have a better tomorrow or to be better pleasing to God, to not allow our traditions of the past or our bad habits to get in the way of that, we have to anticipate the future. That includes dedication, that includes separation, but it also includes, according to what Paul said, transformation, right? We have to have that. Every person in this world is one of two things. You are either a conformer or a transformer. Period. Right? We either conform or we transform. We either conform to what the world wants us to do or we transform ourselves into what God wants. There can be no middle ground. I can't be a conformist in part of my life and be a transformer in another area. Now that's possible. 
but it won't be pleasing to God, right? I can transform my life in some areas where they need to be transformed and refuse to transform my life in other areas and just simply conform, but then that's not going to work with God. He's not going to be pleased with that. A person who obeys the gospel will grow and mature as a Christian. Or something is wrong. We must always be doing that. Because what happens if you're not growing and maturing, you're becoming stagnant, right? In essence, if you're not growing and maturing, you're dying. It's what's happening. All of us who've ever raised a garden, throughout the the harvest uh, or the growing season, we see our vegetables grow and mature. And what happens when they get to the point where they have grown all they can grow? You better get them, right? Because now they're going to rot. They're going to decay. A vegetable can only grow and mature so much. And then you better get to it. Well, see, a Christian isn't that way or shouldn't be that way. We continually grow. We continually mature. And if that ever stops, we're like the tomato on the vine. We will rot and we will decay and we will not be what God wants us to be. Paul encouraged the Ephesian brethren not to become stagnant. Because when that happens, we give Satan an opportunity. And we don't want that. Notice what he said in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 24. He said, Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one, we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Wrath, neither give place to the devil. If we stop growing and maturing, now we're opening up a door because now we begin to decay spiritually. And that gives Satan an opportunity to come in and help to destroy us. We cannot give opportunities to Satan to influence us to sin. He's good enough at that without our own help, right? He knows what he's doing when it comes to that. So we have to put up a fight against him. We have to defend ourselves and do not give him an opportunity. <clears throat> have you ever studied, uh, those who love to, to study and read about history have studied about the various wars and we read about the, the techniques and the, 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 uh, the way that men who have led armies go about certain things. You know, we don't open up an area in our defense to allow the enemy to come in. They're good enough at that on their own as they attack us, right? So we have to guard ourselves. We're not only attacking, we're guarding. And so we have to guard ourselves and not give the enemy an opportunity to come in because we simply were not paying attention. Peter described Satan, 1 Peter 5, 8, and we're familiar with it, as a roaring lion. He's going about, he's looking for someone to destroy, someone to cause them to lose their souls because they're not paying attention. But keep in mind, the thing being transformed is our minds, right? That's what is transformed. The more we desire Christ and God, the less we desire the world. And when we think about transforming our lives, I think we most people think about stopping certain things, doing certain things, and we think of it more as a physical thing, right? I'm not going to physically do these things anymore. I'm going to uh, behave the way I'm supposed to behave, but it all begins in our minds. That's what our lives are. We need to transform our way of thinking. We need to transform our outlook and our attitudes. We need to focus 
on what God wants us to focus upon. The more we think of souls in eternity, the less we think of the physical. And that's the biggest part of the fight, isn't it? And that's what we need to understand. Peter and the other apostles told the Jewish leaders that they were going to be more concerned with the eternal than the worldly. They said, we're going to, we're going to speak and we're going to preach about Jesus, Acts 5.29. We're going to obey God rather than you. We're not going to stop talking about the spiritual. We're not going to stop those things. We're not going to worry about the physical. You may kill us. And that's the mindset they had, wasn't it? You may kill us, but we're not going to stop. We're going to maintain and we are going to continue. The Christian, as he transforms or as she transforms, that will affect three aspects of our lives. I believe it will change one's mind regarding what he does believe or what she believes if we transform our mind. It will change our behaviors, which we know as repentance, right? We come to understand some things. We believe what God said. I thought that as uh, Brother Curry Montague was talking about uh, working with those people in Europe this morning and and, uh, talking about particularly the atheists that he was able to teach and, and those with him and convert them, he changed their minds, right? He began to talk to them. And their ideas began to change. And they began to understand there is a God. Well, that brought about the proper understanding of the relationship one has to have with God. If we're going to have a relationship with God, we have to change ourselves, period, right? God doesn't change. The creature changes. The Creator doesn't change. And so we repent of those things and we come to understand that. Thirdly, I think that it will change our relationship with God, and we can be reconciled to Him through Christ by obedience to the gospel. That's what a renewing and a transforming and a changing of the mind will do. And we talked about it this morning. Brother Curry talked about it this morning. But if we're going to have a better tomorrow, and we're going to be careful about the traditions or the bad habits that we have in our lives, we must have anticipation for the future, but we also have to have cultivation. That's our second and last point. Before we can cultivate anything, we first have to look at it, don't we? If we're going to cultivate a a piece of ground, we have to consider that piece of ground. We have to see what it needs, if it's able. Does it hold water? Will it cause my garden to rot if it rains and, and the water cannot run off? So we have to make an evaluation, right? We have to make an evaluation. And so if I'm going to cultivate myself... I have to make an evaluation. Where do I stand with God? Who knows better where I stand with God than I do? Who knows better where you stand with God than you do? Right? We as individuals know better, so we have to make an evaluation. I have to look at myself. Uh, Where do I want to be in my relationship with God? We have to evaluate where we are. Same thing when we plant a garden. We have to evaluate that spot, right? Is that the proper spot? And I think one of the qualities necessary for proper evaluation is I look at my attitude, my self-awareness. Do I have the proper attitude? Do I have the proper self-awareness? I speak with my wife all the time. I may come in, I've been working on something, My uh, I've cut myself or something's bleeding. I may not even realize I've done that. And she'll say, I've never seen anyone not in tune with their body like that. (laughs) I'm just not paying attention, right? i got something else on my mind. 
But we need to be in tune with our spiritualness, right? We need to be in tune with where we are. I can't ask someone else where I am in my relationship with God. I have to talk to myself. I have to understand. And I have to be honest, right? I have to look at where I am. Uh, Paul demanded this. He was talking to the, to the Corinthian brethren, and he wanted them to do some examining or some evaluation. Second, uh, Corinthians 13, 5 through 6. Notice what he said. Examine yourselves. Well, we might say evaluate. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Paul's saying, we're not reprobates. I want you to be able to look at us. You ought to be able to trust that we're not reprobates. But what about you? What's the context of that whole statement? Paul was defending himself, wasn't he? Some false apostles had come into Corinth. They began to talk about Paul. They began to demean Paul. They began to call themselves apostles. And now all of a sudden, the church in Corinth that that Paul worked so hard for is now questioning Paul. These false teachers were coming in and saying, you know how Paul told you we don't participate in certain aspects of the old law? He's wrong. We still follow Christianity, but you know, we have to bring in uh, circumcision. We have to bring in certain observations. We have to bring those things in. And so Paul makes the statement. He told the Corinthians as he talked to them, he said, I want you to come to this understanding on your own. If you don't, I'll bring the power of an apostle with me. In that way, I'll prove to you my authority. I can prove to you I'm an apostle, but I don't want to do it that way. I want you to examine yourselves. Don't examine me. Don't examine Paul. Examine yourselves. The problem was with the church in Corinth. The problem wasn't with Paul. Because if they had evaluated themselves, they would have come to the understanding pretty quickly. Paul is who he said he was. Let's go back to the beginning and and know how he cared for us and worked among us and he wanted us to be exactly what we ought to be and how much he helped us. And now we've got this group of people coming in and they're talking about Paul. They're running Paul down. They're demeaning Paul. And now all of a sudden they're looking at him in a little different light. Well, wasn't Paul's problem. It was their problem. Evaluate yourself. Don't make me prove to you through the power of an apostle that I am a true apostle. How can I know if I'm in Christ or I'm not in Christ? I need to look at my life, right? Let's do some evaluation. Let's talk about that. First of all, was my conversion like that that we read about in the New Testament? How many times have you talked to someone and they say, absolutely, I'm a Christian. But then you begin to talk to them and and they begin to relay to you some things that happened in their lives, how they came about to, to, in their minds, being a Christian. And we don't even read about that in the New Testament. Right? So I need to evaluate myself. Was my conversion the same as Paul's conversion? The same as uh, any other person who, who became a Christian in the first century? We remember how Paul became a Christian, right? He was on his road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. It's recorded in three different places. The Lord appeared to him, told him to go into 
Damascus and learned there what he needed to do to be a Christian? We remember the story, right? He went in, he prayed and fasted for three days, begging and pleading. And then this man named Ananias came to him, taught him the gospel and said, Paul, Paul, Acts 22, verse 16. What Terrius said, what are you waiting on? Now he had just taught him the gospel. Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Is, was my conversion that way? Because if it wasn't, then I, I'm not in the right relationship with God. I'm not in Christ, right? Am I living the same ways that we read about the first century Christian? Do I study my Bible like Paul told Timothy did? Uh, told Timothy to, 1 Timothy 2.15. Do I attend services on a, on a regular basis, which includes Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night? Am I doing that? Because we have an example of that, right? Am I giving to the church like I ought to be giving to the church? 2 Corinthians 16, 1-2, through because we have example and command. Am I in the right relationship? Are these aspects of my life the same as I read in the New Testament? Am I a soul winner for Christ? Or do I rely on others to carry out the uh, the Great Commission? It's okay. We can't all go. But we can do our parts, right? If you can't go, Paul talked about that. Send somebody, right? If you can't go yourself, send somebody. But that doesn't relieve us of our responsibility to speak to those around us. Am I a soul winner? Evaluation, I think, is the first step in cultivation. And then we need, of course, to have cooperation. We have to have it. If we do not engage in cooperation with ourselves as members of the church, we're not going to be successful. Notice how Luke described the first century congregation that was first established, Acts 2.44. He said those people had, uh, he described them as being together and had all things in common. Now, of course, he's talking a lot about finances, but he's not talking about some type of socialism or communism. Those people gave as they had opportunity, Galatians 6, verse 10. They gave because they chose to give, right? They didn't have to sell their stuff and and give it away. Many of them did, but that was because that's what they chose to do. And we remember in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, talking about Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied to God. And they said, well, we sold this piece of property and we gave it all to the church. Well, they did it because they wanted to pat on the back. They wanted people to recognize them as these great benefactors. And you remember what Peter said? Was it not in your power to do with it what you wanted? They didn't even have to sell it. But if you do, and you give some of it to the Lord, don't lie to Him. Right? Don't lie to Him. They were struck dead. That was the beginning of the church. People had to have their attention grabbed, right? People had to understand a quick way. That's not acceptable, okay? So, but they had all things in common. Not just, not just financial. They had the same mindset, right? They wanted the church to grow. We read Acts chapter 2, a beautiful chapter. They went house to house and they studied and they had fellowship and they observed the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week and they they prayed for one another and they did all those acts of worship because they had this mind, uh, same mindset. They had cooperation. It's just like a physical body, right? You got two arms. If you got three arms, there's a problem, right? What if you only have one arm? It's a problem, isn't it? You got two legs. 
if you only have one leg, that's a problem. What about your eyes? Have you ever had a, a period of time when your eyes weren't working exactly right? Maybe you were a little sick or you had some kind of eye problem, you didn't get your glasses yet? That's a problem, isn't it? When they're not cooperating the way you want them to cooperate. I'll tell you a little story happened to me just the other day. I had to run over to Lowe's on 153 and as I was leaving, I had my glasses on and, and I was trying to adjust them a little bit and I broke the screw in one, in one side. Well, instead of pulling out and hanging a left to come back home, I just hung a right and went on down where Doc Goldston was and went in and begged them to fix them for me. And I said, I'll just leave them with you. You know, I can't see anything. You know, I can't see anything far away. That's a problem, right? I'm waiting on those glasses because I need them. And that's the way the church is. And Paul described it just exactly that way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 22. What if everybody was a foot? Or everybody was an arm? Or everybody was a nose or an eye, right? Well, who's going to see? Who's going to smell? Who's going to walk? Who's going to, who's going to be able to pick things up? What if among the brethren of the Lord's church, all you had was song leaders and you couldn't do a thing else? Who's going to pray? Who's going to preach? Who's going to teach? What about the things that are not, not doctrinal in nature? Who's going to take care of the building? Who's going to count the treasury? Who's going to write the check when we send money to support someone or to help with something? Who's going to pay the light bill? What about the water bill? It's nice to be able to go to the water fountain and get a drink, isn't it? What if we all could only lead singing? We're in trouble, aren't we? What if, what if someone said, I can't do any of that. All I can do is vacuum. Now we're in big trouble, right? Now we're in big trouble. We're missing an arm or a leg or, or an eye or a nose, right? We need all parts. There has to be this spirit of cooperation within the church because no member operates in a capsule. We have to have this cooperation. That doesn't mean one person can't be faithful if everybody else in the world is not faithful. But we're talking about within a faithful congregation of God's people. We have different capabilities. Of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. But we can make the application, right? Some can preach, some can lead singing, some can teach. You know, what if we didn't, uh, what if all of a sudden all our sisters were absent? Brethren, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? We'd be in trouble because they do so much for the church. We need to anticipate a better tomorrow. But if we're going to have that, we need to cultivate for that, right? And we have to first have an evaluation to be able to do that. We have to have cooperation to be able to do that. And then kind of in the same vein, in the same sense, we better have participation, right? Because all of those things can be happening, but a very few people doing them. And that's not what we want. We want participation. We want to be everyone to grow into being able to do something, right? Grow into being able to teach a Bible class or to do something like that. Grow into being able to be a song leader if you need to be able to be one. I'm a little skeptical of myself, but you know, I need to try to grow into it if I can. Right? That's what participation is about. And I believe this section of our passage, as you consider uh, the whole of Romans chapter 12, is very similar 
to the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Christian members. We might just say members, right? Because if you're not a Christian, you cannot be a member of the Lord's church. There's a process that God has set forth. Not people. Rick didn't come up with that. An eldership somewhere didn't come up with that. Some good men somewhere and good women somewhere didn't come up with that. We need to be faithful and to participate among God's people. As we walk the paths of this life, we're going to face some difficulties. And isn't it nice to face those difficulties with some brethren who can identify and understand? We have Sister Nell over at the hospital recovering from surgery. Three of our good sisters were over there with her while she was going through that. Isn't that nice to, to be able to have that? And if Nell needed to be one of those sisters and she was able, she would definitely be one of those sisters doing that. See, that's wonderful to have that participation. Paul encouraged, encouraged all of us as a group when he said this, Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Does that mean that a me can't be more than conquerors if everyone else is unfaithful? No, that's not what that means. But it does mean that Christians are to come together and be a unit for good in the world. I think we all have our own spiritual services to perform. And Paul tells us uh, how we're to behave as we perform those things in the house of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. He went on to say, Let love be without dissimulation, that is, without hypocrisy or play-acting. Isn't it awful? Have you ever known someone who you thought cared for you, and then all of a sudden you find out they didn't? Have you ever had a friend you thought was your good friend, and then all of a sudden you found out that wasn't the case? That's hypocrisy. That's play acting. That's hurtful, isn't it? Paul says, don't be that way. Don't be that way. Love your brethren. Does that mean you want to spend all your extra time with everyone that's a member of the Lord's church? Well, probably not. But that's okay. As long as we treat each other well and we love each other in the ways that we ought to love each other. But let's love each other. John said this, 1 John 3, 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That doesn't mean we're not to say, I love you, verbally. But our actions need to back up that love, right? That statement. Paul listed in depth the necessary qualities that we need to have if we're going to avoid harmful traditions or bad habits. And He expects that out of us. God expects that out of us, right? If we're going to have tomorrow better than today, I need to make some adjustments sometimes in today. The success of any Christian or congregation obviously rests upon that individual or those individuals. We have noted before, we've talked about this a lot, we need to pray as if it all Depends on God and work as it all, as if it all depends on us. And those two things together get us where we need to be. God has blessed our efforts, I believe, here at the White Oak Congregation and through the, the, the church world over as we have engaged in our works and as the church has engaged in its works everywhere throughout the world. I think as we look at 
at Romans chapter 12 and other places in the Bible, we've, had a, we've got a framework or a plan laid out for us to make tomorrow better. Not to allow the traditions or the bad habits of the past to impede us from growing and maturing as Christians. You know, we need to take the gospel to the world because sin has taken the life from everyone. Physically speaking, for sure, right? And for the majority of the people who have ever lived, or whoever will live, sin steals eternal life. And so we need to go into the world. We need to send people, and we need to go ourselves in the areas where we are to combat that. I, I, I tell you, it was really encouraging to me. And I told uh, Brother Curry Montague this, and I told some of the other men, you know, it's encouraging when we hear about a story or hear about the events where someone has gone somewhere and been successful in defeating Satan right where he's living, right? Over in Europe, atheism is rampant. And to hear about someone going in and training and teaching and people overcome that, well, it excites me. It encourages me, and I know it does all of us. We're saved from sin when we access that grace of God. We understand what that is.